1: When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 508- Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of fighting for the faith Wednesday March 21st 2012 you ever had one of those times when you've been so busy that after you've done your busy work you felt like you were farther behind than before you started you know, how they go the faster you go the f- more behind her, you get never mind. Having one of those days. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there in the name of God, and we do the comparative work. You know, testing, you know, Berean style, uh, putting it under scrutiny to see if uh, what is being said is, well, biblical, is solid, is, well, can be trusted, is if that's what the Bible really says. Um, You know, and uh, we try to have a little fun along the way. But the other thing we do on a weekly basis, we do at least one episode of Fighting for the Faith that I call a light edition. Now, that doesn't mean that the topic is light. Not, you know, like light beer or, you know, fewer calories or, you know, things like that. In fact, in many senses, it might actually be denser. It might be more, uh, it made the, the content maybe thicker. Uh, and, but the idea is, is that the light edition, it's a singular topic. And we've been working our way through a series of lectures presented by Dr. Michael Horton of the uh, White Horse Inn. And, uh, he did a series of lectures uh, for Sunday school at the uh, church that he is a pastor at. And uh, the, the the topic is the Great Commission. And so uh, we are up to lectures number 17 and 18. We're going to dive right into it. Here is the next lecture in the series. And here's Dr. Michael Horton.
2: Right, let's go ahead and uh, open in a word of prayer, shall we? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word you have spoken to us through your servant this morning, for confirming that word with the supper. We thank you for the prayers that you have Uh, encouraged us to offer and that you have heard and for the blessing that you have given us in this last hour. We pray now, Father, that uh, we would be able to think through a little bit more what it means for us to be recipients of this kingdom that you are building week after week, year after year, uh, even throughout this pilgrimage, and what it means not only to uh, continue to nurture those who are Uh, near at hand, but to reach those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Hear us, Father, uh, as we ask for your blessing upon our time now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've talked about the importance of distinguishing without separating these things, law and gospel, corresponds roughly to the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors ourselves, and the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The church's people and the church's place. The church is, a, is made up of the people who are not only gathered on Sunday, but are scattered throughout the, uh, the world in their callings on Monday through Saturday. It's it's not just a place, it's the people. That's true. But it is also a place where God is at work. Uh, I, I think of the church as a resalina, resalination plant. You know, the salt loses its savor throughout the week. We come back to church to get salty again. And then we're shaken back out into the world. And uh, if the salt loses its savor, what's it good for but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot? And so the church... You, you have to go to church in order to be the church. <laughs> you know, people say, you can't go to church because we are the church. Uh, well, no, you have to go to church in order to be the church. You have to go back to the resalination plant uh, in order to be salty. And that's uh, here week after week, week in, week out, we're formed again into the people of God. And then roughly corresponding also to these two sides, here's the mission and the marks. And these, all of these categories are distinguishable but not separable. And the tendency we've been seeing, the tendency, the danger I should say, that the church always has in front of it is to affirm both without collapsing one into the other. And I fear that the, the danger of our times, the tendency of our times, is to collapse the gospel which is, is the basis for the Great Commission, the message that we're to take to the ends of the earth, to collapse the Gospel, the Great Commission, the church as place, word and sacrament ministry, and the marks of the church just to collapse them into law, doing the Gospel we hear these days, great commandment, loving our neighbors, is now the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to just live uh, lives of love and service before our neighbors, that is preaching the gospel? No, that's actually not preaching the gospel. It's something we should all do. Uh, And the church as people, now uh, swallowing whole any notion of the church as a place where God does things as defined by the marks of the church, proper preaching of the gospel, proper administration of the sacraments, and uh, discipline, And so when we, when we put these together and we affirm both while distinguishing them, we can say, and this is what we're on today, we can say that the marks of the church that I just mentioned, preaching, sacraments, discipline, the marks of the church are the mission of the church. The, the purpose of the mission is to plant churches that bear the marks. And that means that, and I've heard this even in reform circles these days, uh, you know, we need another mark of the church called mission, because uh, we need mission as a mark of the church. And and, uh, I'm, for my own part, dead set opposed to that, because if a church isn't reaching out to those, not only who are near, but to those who are far away, then... It isn't bearing the marks of the church in the first place. Marks of the church are not just to keep the machine going. You know, make sure that you have these magical three things happening. The purpose of the marks is for mission. The purpose of the marks is so we can uh, reach a, an ever wider circle of people with the good news of Jesus Christ and keep those who've already embraced that message and their children. In that wonderful uh, environment of hearing that good news, that's that's the calling of the church. That is the that is the mission of the church. And so we can't uh, we can't pit the marks of the church against the mission of the church, as if it's okay to have the marks without without having a a missional uh, perspective looking outward. And we can't have a missional perspective without the marks. Otherwise, of what is it a mission? What are we commissioned to do? We're not authorized to build our own kingdoms. We are ambassadors of a king who is building his kingdom. And he has given us clear instructions about how he wants his kingdom built and how he himself is building it. Yet what we see is a gradual... A gradual mission creep, this term mission creep was coined, uh, as I understand it, in uh, the 90s when uh, the mission to Somalia was uh, undefined. And a writer in the Washington Post coined the term to suggest that what's happening in Somalia is something that we were not prepared for. We sent troops in with a very limited peacekeeping function, and now all of a sudden we're almost in the middle of a war. What do you do if your soldiers are being shot at? Well, you have to shoot back. You have to you have to retake a stronghold. And so a peacekeeping mission kind of evolved into, this writer was saying, kind of evolved into something that was not mandated, was not thought through at a... Uh, at at the top levels and we we sort of were just finding ourselves getting broader and broader and broader in that mission. That's what's happening today. The gospel is being defined now as almost anything and everything that's pretty and nice and, you know, gospel music, gospel uh, this, gospel that, Um, and mission now has come to mean just about anything and everything. Uh, and so there's, there's a danger uh, of mission creep. In the 1960s, this was already happening in mainline liberal circles. Harvey Cox at Harvard Divinity School wrote a book in 1965 called The Secular City in which he said the insistence of the reformers that the church is wherever the word is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered will simply not do today. Rather, the church appears wherever a new inclusive human community emerges through social action. And what's really interesting here is now we're hearing conservatives say this, but it's been said for a very long time by American Protestants. And a lot of this comes out of the, the legacy of Charles Finney. Charles Finney said that the church is a society of moral reformers. Now, it makes sense if your theology is about what human beings do to bring about their own salvation and uh, the transformation of the culture. Uh, Charles Finney made it very clear that he didn't believe in original sin. He didn't believe that we were, we were totally depraved. So he said we were in exactly the same situation Adam was before the fall. We can say yes or no. And justification comes, he said, only by exact, absolute, personal obedience to all of the stipulations of the law. And thus we are every moment justified or not justified depending on our obedience. He says it is illegal and impossible for one person to die in the place of another person and bear his guilt. So he denied the substitutionary atonement. Instead, he said Jesus died to provide an example to us of how seriously God takes sin and how much he loves us. And uh, so consequently, we don't need a supernatural rebirth either. He says it's simply a philosophical re- uh, uh, result of the right use of techniques. Get the right program, get the right techniques, the right gimmicks, and you're going to have a much greater sales uh, 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 um, success than you would have if you had simply followed these traditional things that the church has done that are getting us nowhere, like preaching week in and week out. Um, You've got to kind of have a circus. Uh, this sacraments, good grief. What is what's what's all of this stuff? This isn't working. This is not this is this will not do. We uh, new sacraments. The altar call. Let's do that one. And Finney started that thing. He called these things the new measures, and we've been doing it ever since. Uh, and uh, so when, t- when Harvey Cox says that, it's not just a liberal thing. He's kind of speaking out of a history here of, uh, of American Protestantism. Similarly, uh, Dallas Willard writes, an evangelical uh writer, especially on the spiritual disciplines, says, It's a tragic error to think that Jesus was telling us as he left to start churches in the Great Commission. It sounds like he was telling us to start churches. It's where you, you, know, you preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize, and teach them everything I've commanded you. Uh, Instead, he says, Jesus wants to establish beachheads or bases of operation for the kingdom of God wherever we are. The outward effect of this life in Christ is perpetual moral revolution until the purpose of humanity on earth is completed. And so he says, the real question for true disciples is this, will they break out of the churches to instead be his church? Will they break out of this and instead be this? Similarly, Dan Kimball, another uh, evangelical uh, writer, says we can't go to church because we are the church. And so he draws the familiar contrast between mission and the marks of the church. Appealing to Darryl Guter's The Missional Church, Kimball thinks that things went wrong at the Reformation. So we're getting it from all sides. The Reformers, he writes, in their effort to raise the authority of the Bible and ensure sound doctrine, defined the marks of a true true church, a place where the Gospel is rightly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, and church discipline is exercised. However, over time, these marks narrowed the definition of the church itself as a place where, instead of a people who are reality. The word church became defined as a place where certain things happen, such as preaching and holy communion. You see that's that, that's 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 his complaint that, it, that the church should be defined, he believes, as a people who are, not a place where certain things happen. But the, you, know, you notice the, the difference there, the subtle, the subtle difference of emphasis that has really staggering effects. A people who are refers to what? What's that? Who, who, uh, it's about who? It's about us. It's about us a people who are kind of real how how do they get that way first of all if they're if they are this people how did they get that way did they just come together and decide i've decided to follow jesus they they all it's all based on their own free will it's all their decision and their all their own activity what they kind of all put together or are they a people who are marked off from the world Belonging to Christ, living lives of love and service to their neighbors? Are they that reality because of God's work for them, to them, and in them? You see it it, it, it follows, it follows. If you follow Finney on the doctrine, even sort of implicitly, you can't help but come out with Finney on the practice. If you believe that we are building the kingdom of God, then you can't help but try to come up with the best methods for accomplishing that. But if you believe, as Hebrews 11 tells us, that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, not building a kingdom, but receiving the one kingdom that can never be shaken, Precisely because we're not building it, then the writer of the Hebrews says, "Worship, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us re- worship Him with thanksgiving, in reverence and awe." See, that's the right response. The right response is thanksgiving, uh, not not uh, not pride, uh, and and. Uh, What we're seeing today really is the playing out of what Paul talks about in Romans 10 in the contrast between the righteousness which is by works and the righteousness which is by faith, which correlates precisely with what Pastor Fesco was talking about in terms of the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. In Romans 10, Paul says, The righteousness which is by the works of the law says, how can I go get him to bring him down? How can I go climb Jacob's ladder? Or how can I descend into the depths to bring him up from the dead? You know, how can we whirl him out of the tomb and really make, bring him to life in, in our midst as a congregation? And Paul says the righteousness of faith doesn't speak that way. The righteousness of faith says he is as near as the Word of Christ which we preach. You don't have to go get Him. He comes to you. You primarily have to do the hardest thing that it is for you all to do, Paul is saying, as human beings, especially us as Americans, you have to sit down and shut up. <laughs> you know, it's the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing is not to, 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 to build a kingdom however you define that, the hardest thing is to receive one. That's the hardest thing. And yet that's exactly what God is doing in our midst. We are receiving a kingdom. And that's wonderful. That actually frees us up to be witnesses at, uh, wherever God has placed us with, with uh, uh, believers and unbelievers alike. That actually liberates us. That frees us up. We're receiving a kingdom. Wouldn't you like to be a part of this kingdom we're receiving? From the Great Commission and the book of Acts, we hear of a kingdom that descends from heaven and expands to every nation precisely through the marks of preaching, sacraments, and discipline. The whole book of Acts is about how the kingdom of God spread through preaching, sacraments, and discipline. The apostles preached a sermon about Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. Many people there uh, 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 responded and were baptized and they brought their whole households in several instances, brought their whole households to be baptized. And then they were looked after and cared for in both their spiritual and material needs. So we have to go to church in order to be the church. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul upbraids the Corinthians for their spiritual immaturity illustrated in chaotic, messy worship. Uh, I just read one uh, uh, evangelical missional writer who says, church has to be messy. He says, the way we have it, for example, is, uh, you know, there's one station where some people go for... uh, for a labyrinth if they want to, another place where they go just to pray alone if they want to, another place over here where they, they can go sit in chairs with a conversation and talk, you know, where, where God is a conversation partner there, and uh, another place where they can they have icons, and people can go over there and uh, do the icon thing. And he says sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll all kind of walk back together and sit down and take uh, communion together, he says, uh, oh, it's a very messy enterprise. He says, sometimes someone will get up and talk about what it means to them. And, and he says, that while the children are uh, playing with the communion bread because it's usually sourdough, jalapeno. <laughs> and uh, his, he says, uh, uh, but, you know, it, it, uh, uh, church is supposed to be messy, uh, not... Uh, in order and decency. But maybe, maybe he can get away with that because so many Christians today don't remember that verse, apparently, where Paul says that worship must be done decently and in order. <laughs> For God is not a God of chaos, but a God of order. Uh. And so we're, what we're getting right now is a you know not just a kingdom we're building, but a kingdom over which we rule. The whole idea of being ambassadors, representing a king who really has pretty much decided how he's going to do it uh, and what he's going to say and just sort of gives us the script and says, here, do this. Uh, we want to get creative. We want to get creative with the gospel. We want to get creative with the Great Commission. Finally, the trajectory that leads to private spiritual disciplines on the one hand or transformative conversation and cultural activity on the other hand, instead of the ordinary means of grace, threatens to turn the the visible church not into a community of receivers who are renewed by the Spirit through the means of grace, but into an internet cafe Uh, where really the communion of saints itself is vanishing. This is actually being argued today uh, by some evangelicals like uh, George Barna, who suggests that uh, within 20 years, most people will get all of their spirituality online and won't need to bother with this inflexible uh, uh, time shifting where they have to make room in their very busy Sunday schedules uh, with sports and entertainment um, for for church, for getting together as a... They can just get it off the Internet. That's that Because it's all about doing, and you can get all of the rules and instructions and resources that you need online. Of course, what you can't get online is bodies, including the body and blood of Christ. Um, it's really hard to get wine out of your laptop, uh uh you can't be baptized uh, uh online you can't uh there you know i'm sure soon there will be some way uh somebody will figure out how to how to make water squirt out of the speaker or something uh but for now now for now it's not quite as crazy as that but a lot of people A lot of people already think that spirituality is about what happens in you that has nothing to do with what happens outside of you, something you hear, something you see, something you touch. Human bodies being transformed by the grace of God in communion with each other. In other words, we're becoming Gnostics, following that ancient church heresy that really threatened the early church, which divided the soul from the body and said everything on the side of matter is evil, and everything on the side of Spirit is good. Now, not many Christians today will say that it is evil, but they will say it's what happens inside us directly, immediately, spontaneously by the Holy Spirit. It's not what the Spirit does through earthly means, earthly society, earthly uh, uh, formation, the, the, the means of grace over a long period of time. And, you know, one of the things that causes mission creep in a culture like ours is it's not quick and it's not easy. Uh, it's it's it it's a lifetime. Uh, it's it's suffering, as we've heard. It's not a theology of glory; it's a theology of the cross. Uh, one uh, uh, emergent church leader echoes Barna's fascination with the disembodied fellowship of the saints. He says, "I consider." uber blogger Bob Carlton in San Francisco, one of my closest friends, although we've never been in the same room. You know, it's one thing the wider culture is going in that direction. We should do everything we, we can as neighbors, just as as love, uh, neighbors who, who love each other, to caution against even culture going in that direction. But for churches to go in that direction is to is to deny one of the articles of our creed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church and the communion of saints. That's an article of the creed. And yet this writer says, emergent churches are like a wiki church. You uh, can't drive to an office building, park in a parking, parking lot, and walk in the front door of Internet Inc. When it comes to the Internet, there's no there there. It exists, but as a scale-free network with lots of hubs. The term wiki comes uh, comes to refer to an Internet technology that always allows any user to modify the content in a database with few or no restrictions. Wiki is a Hawaiian word meaning quick, and wikis, are developed to be quickly and easily accessible. One can look at the qualities of Wikipedia and analogize them to many other scale-free networks, including the emergent church. He goes on to say, uh, yes, there will still be a few uh, 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 traditional churches uh, that focus on the preaching of the word and administration of the sacraments and discipline and all those things. But he says, uh, uh, yeah, there are still payphones too. He says, if you ask why we're a church, why we come together, why we're family, he says, uh, uh, used to be, he says, uh, uh, Roman Catholics would say, well, because we're, we're Roman Catholics. We're related to the Pope uh, politi- uh, institutionally. And uh, he says, you'd ask the uh, Presbyterians, and they would say, well, we confess the same faith. Glad he. You're always nervous. What's he going to say? Presbyterians say. Uh, they confess the same faith. If you ask us, he says it's because we're a group of friends. And you know, I mean, that's, that's you can form a group of friends. You can, you can have a group of friends over the internet or what have you, you, you. But you, you can't have a family. You can't have a family without being a part of a local assembly of that worldwide family. MIT professor Sherry Turkle observes that people are, quote, increasingly living in alternative realities, synthetic communities that circumvent the kind of real life societies that embodied interaction generates. She says, as more people spend more time in these spaces, some go so far as to challenge the very idea of giving any priority to the RL, real life. After all, why grant such superior status to the self that has the body when the selves that don't have bodies are able to have different kinds of exciting experiences? Wow. Now you get from Charles Finney who says... We need to find excitements sufficient to induce conversion to a, a form of disembodiment that is celebrated as the height of technological realization, and uh, it, it just it, it it really creates the perfect storm. What do we? Why do so? What do we do in the light of this? When when for us, what, what we confess is everything bodily. We believe, we confess, and this is what just made the Gnostics go crazy, we confess the Word, God Himself, became flesh. A human just like us, yet without sin. We confess that that Word was touched and hurt. I mean, John says, what we're testifying to is not a liver shiver we had this morning. We're not testifying to something that went on in our heart you ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. We're not, we're not sharing some you know, great, exciting experience that we had. We're testifying to what our eyes saw, what our hands handled, what we touched, namely, the Word of Life. It's an embodied religion. This is not a religion of great ideas. This is a religion of Christ, God, made flesh. And the way, that we, the way that we come into union with Christ is through earthly means, creaturely means. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, preaching, teaching. And what it creates is embodied. A fellowship of real live, heart beating, pulse, pulsating, flesh and bone people coming together with coughs and aches and frustrations and hurts and hopes and being formed into nothing less than that anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb where people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation are gathered for the feast that never ends. And oh yeah, there will be wine there. And it won't be spirit wine. And yes, there... (laughs) And yes, there, there will be water, and yes, there, there will be meat, and and then Christ will not be our Passover Lamb. He will be the one who turns the meal into the feast. He will be the, he will, he will be the the, the uh, one with the most sparkling conversation. He will be the host. He will fascinate us and regale us. <laughs> with the story of how He, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, created it all, redeemed it all, and brought us into it forever and ever. There's nothing greater than that, even when we come here and with all of our frustrations, all of our problems, all of our sense that none of, this, none of this is really getting through to me today, and yet next week it might. That's okay, because we're pilgrims on the way, we're not trying to get out of our bodies. We're stumbling along in our bodies, in the flesh, until that day when we're raised in the glorious likeness of our Lord. And we do it all together. Any questions, comments? You mentioned earlier, Charles Bay and the altar call. was that originally called ancient <laughs> yeah, Jerry asks, "How do you get from anxious bench to, to altar call? Because it was originally called the anxious bench." Uh, yeah, originally what happened uh, was you would, if if the Lord was dealing with you or somebody thought that the that the Lord was dealing with you, you would be moved or would move yourself down to the front to the front rows. Just so you guys know, you're in the you should feel very anxious. <laughs> uh yeah, it was it was uh usually where the evangelist sprayed spittle uh as he as he ranted uh across the platform and he would look right into the white of their eyes and say, "Do you know you are standing on the precipice of hell itself?" And he would speak to each one uh individually, just looking directly in their eyes. So the rest everyone else was kind of breathing e- breathing easily while the people up front were just, oh, good grief, oh, oh, I feel horrible. Well, yeah, you've been embarrassed in front of 80 of the people you bank with and work with every day. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a mortifying, of course it's a mortifying experience. Uh, so, But that was called the anxious bench, and then it turned into the altar call. Um, I had a uh, great... Uh, uh, Friend, um, Southern Baptist pastor asked, asked me to come uh, preach at his church, and he says, "Now you, I want you to say whatever, whatever crazy stuff you want to say." <laughs> and you know, he was a five-point Calvinist, but he says, "I, you know, this other stuff, this Reformed theology, and so whatever, go ahead and do it. My people are ready for it. We're just, we're now really excited about hearing about the Word of God, and we will talk about it, and we'll." We'll judge for ourselves whether we think it. So come on in and give both barrels. So I wanted to be contextual. And so I said, uh, yeah, when I, went, I grew up uh, Southern Baptist, we had, um, we had this, this uh, thing called uh, a, uh, oh, at the end, at the end of every service, uh, the, the, oh, something called. And, and, and one of the pastors uh, shouted, altar call. Said, yeah, I'm sorry, what, uh, what call? Altar. What? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Altar. Wow. Interesting. Because we, in the Reformed tradition, we got rid of altars in the Reformation, and we have tables for the Lord's Supper, and people are invited to come forward to that sacrament. But where did Jesus institute this sacrament with its altar? And uh, I, I say, it sounds like Roman Catholic theology. I mean, if you're, if you're you know, you had a bad week or you, it was like summer camp or something and then you came forward. Here, let me read you a passage from Thomas Aquinas on penance. He calls it a second plank after making a shipwreck of your faith. And first it requires sorrow and then contrition and then uh, a a deep desire not to uh, do it again, and then confession, and then the priest absolves you, tells you that you have uh, done what needs to be done, and now you're forgiven of your sins. I said, what stage doesn't happen in an altar call? (laughs) One of the pastors says, boy, if you think then he... Roman Catholics here, you're about as lost as a ball in tall grass. (laughs) But by the end of it, we had this great conversation, and there were several pastors there who were listening and kind of taking it in. I really do think that there's this righteousness which is by faith, that is content with the means that God has provided, where he comes down to us. And then we kind of have not a whole lot of different options with uh, the righteousness which is by works. We, we kind of keep going back to ladders that we climb in order to get him to down or to bring him up from the dead. And this is not a problem of one tradition over another. Reformed and Presbyterian churches have to struggle with this. This is who we are till we die. This is what we're being sanctified from, a theology of glory. And it will, it will always be our, our native tongue. It'll always be our natural default setting. Uh, one more question, and then we'll Here. close up. Yeah. <laughs> <The mission laughs> and, 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 and planting broadly used, planting, overseeing, you know, continuing to the very end. Peter's Peter's statement, uh, the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, it's concentric circles. It's not just the covenant community; it's the covenant community expanding its borders to include people who were once not a people. How does an ordinary congregant participate in that? How does an ordinary congregant participate in that? Well, first of all, uh, the by, by participating in the public means of grace, the Great Commission originally was given to the apostles. Uh, and the apostles uh, 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 passed, their, uh, uh, p- passed these means on, not the apostolic office, but the means of grace on to uh, the pastors who followed and told them that this is what you're to do. Uh, but then also believers were witnessing uh, to Christ in all of their circumstances uh, uh, it, it wasn't simply the case that people came to church, heard the heard uh, the word. If they wanted to bring a non-Christian to church, they brought a non-Christian to church. And it, it wasn't just that. There was a lot of conversation that went on behind the scenes at work, at at uh, you know, uh, company functions, at uh, social events, and so forth. That's where ministers can't go. Ministers can't get into. Uh, business, medicine, janitorial services, uh, carpentry. Uh, Ministers can't do that like the people in their congregation. Uh, The people in their congregation are going to have a lot more witness effect than the pastors themselves. But hopefully they will uh, uh, bring people into the sphere of the public means of grace and that's where... Uh, God turns a house into a home. That's where he... Uh, but it's, it's really essential that, we're all, uh, that we are all involved in this, engaged in this through our callings, through our friendships, and, uh, yeah, our, our uh, broader relationships. And, as Paul says, by working well with our hands so that we will win the respect of outsiders and have something for those in need being good at our callings. Okay, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us a very clear gospel and a very clear mission of how to get that gospel to the ends of the earth and to keep it hovering over uh, the saints wherever they gather week in, week out, forming uh, those uh, local uh constituencies of the family that you have chosen redeemed and sent your spirit to unite to your son so that he can be the head of a large family help us father to grow up more and more into him uh, even here in santee for we pray in christ's name amen
1: amen all right we're gonna pause right there pay some bills and Testing. There we go. Okay, let's try this again. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills, and we'll be right back. When we come back, we will be listening to lecture number 18 in the Great Commission series by Dr. Michael Horton. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Max Holidays, Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday?
0: Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth.
1: Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars?
0: You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures.
1: Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer?
0: Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7.
1: What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons?
0: Is this a joke?
1: No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons.
0: Words like junk food. Cotton candy and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind.
1: All right, we're back. Warning Listening to fighting for the faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if, well, your pastor's not preaching the gospel to you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6 95 cents every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is lecture number 18 in the Great Commission series by Dr. Michael Horton, and here's Dr. Horton.
2: Well, we're Uh, For the last uh, umpteen weeks, we've been going through the Great Commission in its various uh, forms and uh, looking at especially the broader New Testament teaching that fleshes out the Great Commission, including some of the ways in which the Great Commission played itself out on the ground in the Book of Acts. And we've also talked about the relationship between the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, In other words, between social justice, social concern on one hand, and evangelism on the other. And now I want to uh, address a question that sometimes comes up, especially when we're talking to people uh, outside of Reformed churches who uh, worry desperately that we've joined a cult uh, because we don't believe in evangelism anymore or missions, because if you believe that God has chosen some to be saved... Uh, then, uh, of course, you're going to be anti-missions. So that's what I want to address today. Uh, Calvinistic evangelism. Uh, Oxymoron? (laughs) Absolutely not. It is uh, perfectly consistent. I want to look at two things. This week, I want to look at uh, the historical answer to this question and uh, next time, I want to focus on the, the, the logical and scriptural answer to the question. In other words, when somebody says, look, if you become Reformed, you're no longer going to evangelize, you're not going to be interested in missions, they usually have a logical point in mind. They, they, they assume a false view of what election teaches a false view of the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and then leap to the conclusion that on the basis of those premises which we do not hold, we must be opposed to evangelism. And so what I would like to do before I even address that part of it is uh, to address the historical question. Uh, William R. Estep, a noted authority on Anabaptism and professor at Southwestern Baptist Seminary, asserts that, quote, Logically, Calvinism is anti-missionary. If election is true, evangelism and missionary effort are exercises in futility, end quote. And that's a view that a lot of people hold, a lot of people assume. But the first question to, 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 to ask in responding to uh, an, uh, an assertion like that is what has actually been the history. So before I even address the logic of his argument, if election is true, evangelism and missionary effort are exercises in futility, I want to look at the historical question of what, whether, in fact, Reformed churches did think it was an exercise in futility. If Reformed missions is not an oxymoron, then it's one of two possibilities. Either they evangelized and were engaged in missions in spite of what they believed or because of what they believed. But of great consequence is, is, is the answer to that question, has Reformed theology and have Reformed churches contributed to missions? The only way to, to get rid of the caricatures is by actually looking at, at the history Um, First of all, missions in the Reformation era. A lot of people uh, say the Reformation wasn't very interested in missions. You you can read historians of missions and they say, the Reformation was really not a great era in the history of missions. And and so let's start there. Let's start with the Reformation era and then, then work up. It all depends really on what you think the Reformation was. If you think the Reformation was much ado about nothing then of course it was a distraction from the real mission of the church, namely taking the gospel to every person. However, if it really was a recovery of the gospel, and people from the outer Hebrides near the North Pole of Scotland all the way to uh, uh, Ottoman-occupied Eastern Europe embraced the gospel for the first time, at least they said they did, millions and millions and millions of people, then the Reformation was the greatest missionary event in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. It all depends on how you look at it, what you think the Reformation was. At the same time, the first wave of missionaries sent to far-flung regions in the early modern period were Roman Catholic monks. And that made perfect sense. Historian of Missions Ruth Tucker observes, Worldwide missions was not a major concern of most of the Reformers. Just holding their own in the face of Roman Catholic opposition and breaking new ground in Europe were significant achievements in themselves. And there was little time or personnel for overseas ventures. Uh, One thing that historians point out too is that Roman Catholic missionaries always traveled with uh, 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 government-sponsored Explorers or conquistadors, conquerors, and so the missionaries were were uh, <laughs> you know par- on the payroll of the king, and they were sent along with uh, the explorers and and conquerors. Uh, missions went hand in hand with empire. Well, what empire did Lutheran and Reformed churches have? They were they were trying to survive. They were being persecuted. And so it wasn't exactly uh, a missionary-friendly era in the history of Protestant missions. Fred Klooster adds, we know how difficult it was for the Reformers to propagate the gospel within Europe under governments controlled by Roman Catholic princes, kings, and emperors. Practically every door to the heathen world was closed to Calvin as well as the other Reformers because the world of Islam to the south and east was guarded by Turkish armies, while the navies of Spain and Portugal prevented access to the recently discovered New World. Pope Alexander VI in 1493 gave the Spanish and Portuguese crowns, exclusive rights to these areas, and later popes and treaties reaffirmed these donations. So the the popes said, here is the title deed to the New World to Spain and Portugal. Not exactly uh, a a, a free enterprise zone for religion. In addition, as Ruth Tucker notes, Martin Luther was so certain of the imminent return of Christ that he overlooked the necessity of foreign missions. and That's partly true. Luther, like many of his day, uh, thought that the Great Commission was only given to the Apostles. Now, I argued as we went through that, it was given initially to the apostles, that was the original audience, just like Galatia was the original audience of the book of Galatians, uh, but that it's still in effect, the Great Commission is still in effect, and there are special, there is, is special office, pastor, elder, deacon, and broader office, all Christians Uh uh, exhort and teach and admonish each other, and also bring the gospel to their friends, relatives, and neighbors, and so forth. So, uh, but L- Luther did think the Great Commission was specifically given to the apostles, and they had fulfilled their mission. It wasn't for us. Anyway, it doesn't matter because Christ is going to return very soon. Lutherans did become involved in early Protestant missions, and especially uh, with the rise of Lutheran pietism. Uh, Tucker notes Calvin himself was at least outwardly the most missionary-minded of all the Reformers. Uh, He not only sent dozens of evangelists back to his uh, native France, but also commissioned missionaries uh, along with a number of French Huguenots, to establish a colony and evangelize the Indians in Brazil. It's a famous mission. In fact, it was the first Protestant missionary enterprise in the New World. Sent from Calvin Geneva. uh, Calvin is the pastor, uh, and he's the one who commissioned the missionaries. The leader of the group defected to the Portuguese and uh, allowed the Jesuit missionaries to come in and slaughter them. So all of the Calvinist missionaries were slaughtered by Jesuit missionaries. The whole Jesuit order was founded to destroy Calvinism. That was the main. That's why the great universities or Roman Catholic universities are Jesuit because they wanted to counteract the rise of the great Reformed universities. Um, they're called uh, uh, God's Marines, not by Protestants. Um, there's also Jean Delary, one of Calvin's favorite theology students, um, who was one of the missionary martyrs there in, in Brazil. And so what was Calvin's response when he heard word? Same response that he had when he, uh, w- when he heard that uh, the, the class of 1545 had just been slaughtered in France. Sent another class. And it was said that uh, a diploma from the Geneva Academy was your death warrant. And that's true for... uh, So uh, uh, Calvin was sending missionaries all over the world and especially all across Europe. At home, Reformed churches became centers for refugees fleeing persecution throughout Europe. Philip Edgecombe Hughes explains. Calvin's Geneva was something more... Than a haven of refuge for the afflicted. It was a school in which, with the aid of regular lectures and daily sermons, the people were instructed and built up to be strong in the Christian faith. Even more significantly, it was a school of missions. It was open not only to receive fugitives, but also to send out witnesses who would spread the teaching of the Reformation far and wide. It was a dynamic center of missionary concern and activity. And so many fanned out from Geneva to. In France, Italy, Poland, England, Scotland, all over. In fact, the Ottoman Empire, uh, where Islam had taken whole sections of uh, Eastern Europe, Uh, ironically, the Sultan allowed uh, Reformed churches to uh, flourish under his part of the empire uh, that was under his control while the Catholic uh, emperor was slaughtering them. So... uh, Can understand why Martin Luther said, I'd rather be uh, governed by a wise Turk than by a stupid Christian? (laughs) That really got everybody's attention then too. Uh, (laughs) In 1561, one year alone, 142 graduates. Now remember, these are the days when 142 graduates of anything was a large class. 142 graduates were commissioned by the church in Geneva as missionaries abroad. Uh, In his native France, the tiny bands of evangelical Christians that had formed scattered churches here and there, barely escaping martyrdom, barely holding on, swelled to over 3 million by 1562. In fact, at one point, the population grew uh, to the point where over half of the French population was reformed. And there was a, a, a fear that uh, France would actually, well, France actually got a reformed king. Uh, their favorite sort of George Washington kind of figure, uh, Henri IV, was uh, was reformed, but he said Paris is worth a mass. And so he converted in order to become king. Um, but uh, as Frank James III remarks far from being disinterested in missions, History shows that Calvin was enraptured by it. I could go through some of his sermons. I, I won't, but it, uh, that's where you really find it. He goes out of his way to apply passages to the urgency of the missionary uh, calling. The Heidelberg Catechism itself was an evangelistic tool translated immediately not only into Dutch. It was originally, of course, in German and Latin. But uh, Saxon, Hungarian, English, Greek, French, Polish, Lithuanian, Italian, Greek, and Hebrew. Uh, It was immediately uh, translated into Hebrew by a Reformed Orthodox theologian, Tramelius, because he was a converted Jew and he wanted uh, to bring uh, the gospel to his uh, brothers and sisters according to the flesh. A Greek translation was sent... Uh, of the Heidelberg Catechism was sent uh, to the Patriarch of Constantinople who converted. The Patriarch of Constantinople signed the Canons of Dort, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Belgic Confession. <laughs> and so for a brief and shining moment, <laughs> Eastern Orthodoxy embraced the five points of Calvinism. And then uh, he was assassinated in his bed by a Jesuit uh, missioner. And subsequently, the Eastern Orthodox Church held a council just to say, he doesn't speak for us. That patriarch was a bad patriarch embracing such a horrible thing as Calvinism. Uh, A school was established in Leiden, the Netherlands, simply for training missionaries. The early missionary success throughout Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, Sumatra, and other regions was, was truly remarkable. Uh, in fact, the canons of Dort that give us the so-called five points of Calvinism uh, explicitly underscore the importance of the missionary mandate to proclaim the gospel promiscuously and indiscriminately to every nation and I- every person. We may bristle at the confusion of Christ and empire, but that's what did happen in Reformed missions, just as in Roman Catholic missions. Now the missionaries were on board the Dutch East India Company ships uh, and the British uh, East India ships. And going going around the world, they were required by the government, uh, by the crown, to provide a certain number of spaces for Reformed missionaries on the ships and to provide all of their meals, <laughs> room and board, for all of the missionaries. Oh, and by the way, anyone who was converted, any, uh, uh, the, the rule that came down at the, at the Synod of Dort itself was that anyone who is baptized upon baptism loses his slavery and has to be set free. And uh, you know, the problem of Christ and empire was a lot of the Dutch East India people wanted to keep the missionaries quiet because they had a little economic interest in uh, having them quiet. The, uh, mo- let's move up a little bit in time. Uh, the same kind of uh, tendency to, uh, cr- uh, to confuse Christ and empire was evident also in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The, the colony itself was founded with this charter to win and incite the natives of the country to the knowledge of the one and only true God and Savior of mankind and the Christian faith. That was the charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The General Court of Massachusetts encouraged the evangelization in the mid-1600s, uh, and one who responded to the call was Calvinist pastor John Eliot, who lived from 1604 to 1690. He eventually left his pastorate in Roxbury, Massachusetts, to live among uh, the Indians, preaching and teaching catechism to the children. And partly in response to his work, the English Parliament authorized the founding of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in New England. Soon he was joined by assistants who, like him, learned the Algonquin and Mohican languages. He translated the catechism, the whole Bible, and the Psalms into Algonquin and Mohican and uh, 3,600 natives were baptized in one year alone and native pastors were immediately ordained. They set up schools. Uh, a whole school system emerged out of this as as well. One biographer of John Eliot says, what carried him through the years of opposition, hardship, and disappointment? Three characteristics are worth noting, his unbending optimism, his ability to enlist the help of others, and his absolute certainty that God, not he, was saving souls and was in control of the bad times as well as the good. Evidently, that basic conviction that we, are not the sa- we, don't, do it, we don't save anybody, God does, the sovereignty of God and his grace, was actually a motivating factor. Uh, We could talk about the Mayhew family. The Mayhew family came to Martha's Vineyard, bought it from England, and settled it with senior Mayhew uh, becoming the first governor of Martha's Vineyard with the whole purpose of converting the Indians there uh, to the Christian faith. His, uh, his, His son carried on his work and then when his son died at sea... Uh, on a trip to England, uh, the senior Mayhew at uh, 85 years old carried on the work with his grandson. And uh, so now f- uh, uh, three generations of missionaries with uh, 300, uh, 300 Indians converted uh, in the first year. And they all went to study first. They went to... They, there was a very. There's always been this profound sense that 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 people abroad deserve to have as well-trained ministers as people uh, at home, and so missionaries were trained just like uh, pastors of any settled congregation. They were expected to learn Greek and Hebrew. Uh, they were expected to uh, uh, learn church history and. Uh, the whole range of uh, of Christian teaching. Um, could mention David Brainerd, another example, 1718 uh, to 1747, uh, who worked with the Indians in western Massachusetts under the Society, the Scottish Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge. Uh, Brainerd himself noted in his diary, it was surprising to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender and melting invitations of the gospel when there was never a word of terror spoken to them. In the mid-1700s, Eliezer Wheelock sought to bring Indians and white settlers together for mission training in Hanover, New Hampshire. And so this training center in Hanover, uh, New Hampshire was a missionary school for whites and Indians be trained together and then they said, as often happened as with Harvard, uh, out of these missionary centers they also need uh, liberal arts training, classical liberal arts training and so it grew into a college but the charter of the college of Dartmouth was that it had to be uh, uh, emphasize missionary training for whites and Indians together. Along with a liberal arts uh, curriculum, and uh, there always ha- would have to be uh, as many Indians as white uh, students. In its heyday, Yale was a major training and, se- and missionary sending uh, center. Uh, in fact, one of the main reasons Yale was founded was because Harvard became Arminian and then Unitarian. And uh, so the the disgruntled Calvinists went off and founded Yale. And immediately it was founded as a missionary center, not just as an egghead place, but as a missionary school. And uh, uh, then the Presbyterians came over and they founded the Log College for the purpose of evangelism and missions. They changed the name a little later to Princeton. And... uh, Uh, disgruntled people left Harvard uh, because it was now uh, not uh, uh, reformed enough and also wasn't interested in missions and founded Andover. So, (laughs) you know, several... Let's see, Dartmouth, uh, originally Harvard, then Dartmouth, Brown, Yale, Princeton, all founded as Calvinistic missionary and pastoral training colleges. Soon, Calvinists were looking to Africa and Asia as the new frontier of missions. Um, there were already Dutch Reformed missionaries in the South. Presbyterian Robert Moffat, uh, 1795 to 1862, staunch uh, Presbyterian raised by uh, Scottish uh, parents, raised on the catechism and missionary stories, was the first to penetrate the African interior together with his wife Mary. Um, the first uh, white person to penetrate the African interior. Moffat's more famous son-in-law, David Livingston, 1813 to 1873, became the more famous pioneer of African missions. Uh, The New York Herald sent a reporter to find him. (laughs) Where is David Livingston, the great David Livingston? And Henry Stanley was sent to find him dead or alive. And the half-dead missionary uh, was greeted by Stanley with the words, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Although Stanley's medicine and food restored Livingston's health for a while, he died a year later. But through that encounter, Stanley, who said that he was a a resolute skeptic when it came to religion, uh, said, I was converted by him, although he had never tried to do it. Uh, Ruth Tucker points out that these missionaries, quote, more than any other outside influence, these missionaries, more than any other outside influence, fought against the evils of colonialism and imperialism that sought to corrupt the missionary enterprise. Uh, Out of the Calvinistic awakening in Wales in 1772, uh, the London Missionary Society was born. The whole London Missionary Society was uh, founded by Calvinists. The Scottish Missionary Society, founded by Scottish Presbyterians, uh, Scottish Presbyterian Mary Slesser, who uh, proclaimed herself a wild lassie, became a pioneer missionary to West Africa in 1876 at 27 years of age. Uh, she was honored as the first female vice consul of the British Empire, and but yet she said publicly, publicly even telling. Uh, Queen Victoria, that as much as she was obliged and and was was grateful for it, she was more honored to be working for the King of Kings. It, uh, in 1915, at the age of 66, she was found dead in her mud hut. Robert Morrison was the first Presbyterian missionary in China. The son of staunch Scots Presbyterian parents the first Protestant missionary in China, Presbyterian. And among his remarkable achievements was the first translation of the Bible in Chinese. German Reformed missionary Karl Gutzloff was commissioned by the Netherlands Missionary Society, sent to Indonesia, Thailand, and Manchuria, Korea, Formosa, translated the whole Bible into Cambodian and Laotian. Eventually he established a base in Hong Kong, where in six years he trained more than 300 Chinese leaders as missionaries. One historian says, People everywhere were flocking to hear the gospel messages. And the greatest news of all was that no fewer than 2,871 converts had just been baptized. In his words, Gutzloff's words, upon examination and satisfactory confession of their faith. So that didn't quite get in the way. Rigorous examination and confession of the faith didn't get in the way of missions at all. Jonathan Goforth, I love that name, China's most he's called China's most outstanding evangelist, was together with his missionary wife Rosalind, a staunch Canadian Presbyterian. While the Roman Catholic missionaries were offering political and economic enticements to those who would uh, convert, Goforth countered, quote, we could offer no such inducements and we have a horror of making rice Christians. We cannot fight Rome by competing with them in buying up the people. Nevertheless, God blessed his work tremendously. Uh, even tens of thousands who had joined Rome converted to the evangelical faith. Uh, as theological liberalism made its way to China in the 1920s, Goforth said, that he, quote, felt powerless to stem the tide and could only preach as never before salvation through the cross of Calvary and demonstrate its power, end quote. In the mid-19th century, a young student at Princeton Seminary became convinced to go to the mission field after a lecture by Charles Hodge in which Hodge uh, said that it it is uh, hyper-Calvinistic to say that God will save the elect. You don't need to worry about it. God always works through means. And this student was so enraptured uh, by Hodge's defense of the missionary enterprise that Ashebel Green Simonton, uh, the student, led not only many natives to Christ in Brazil, uh, but also many of the Roman Catholic settlers, including hundreds of priests. He uh, died at age 34. Within eight years, he had established the Presbytery of Rio de Janeiro, and the Brazilian Presbyterian Seminary of 1867. Today, there are well over two million Communicant Presbyterian members in Brazil alone. Just to put that in perspective, there are only 300,000 PCA. And I forget, but I think something, uh, something on the order of 80,000 Orthodox Presbyterian. Two, over two million uh, in Brazil alone. Uh, In fact, in 1950, a noted British Methodist missionary to India, N. Carr Sargent, could say, quote, now here's an Arminian speaking, to praise Arminianism and to reproach Calvinism is the conventional judgment in our circles. In respect of missions, however, rigid Calvinism and the warm Arminianism of the Wesleys were in substance the same. In fact, while Methodist missions focused on inculcating Wesleyan distinctives to nominal Christians... Calvinist missionaries were constantly being sent to the heathen, End quote. Uh, we can talk about William Carey, the Calvinistic Baptists. Uh, as Timothy George points out, the Arminian Baptists called General Baptists because they believed in general atonement, not particular redemption. The General Baptists uh, uh, refused to subscribe anything, including the Apostles' Creed, and quickly went from Arminianism to Unitarianism, they never uh, planted churches or uh, had any evangelistic efforts at all. It was only the Calvinists in England, Calvinistic Baptists in England, who were missions-minded. Now, it doesn't mean that there were no Arminians. There certainly were in the Church of England uh, Arminians as well as Calvinists who were missions-minded, but the Calvinists in every denomination were in the leadership, in the vanguard of founding these missionary societies. Uh, I, I, I could spend the whole, you know, a, a year on on uh, what uh, William Carey alone accomplished. It's really a remarkable. I and mean, he's in all the history books of India, just as a major figure. Uh, culturally, uh, set up their school system. Um, Uh, for example, translated a lot of their cultural works as well as religious works. Really just an amazing figure. Uh, Presbyterians were also early pioneers of missions in India. Alexander Duff arrived in Calcutta with his wife in 1830 and in addition to planting churches, established a network of schools, including colleges and medical centers and so forth. Uh, even to the point where the greatest problem was, everybody wanted to get into these uh, colleges uh, without any profession of faith because uh, they were just good schools. I could spend a a whole uh, uh, month on the Korean Peninsula. North Korea was uh, for... uh, uh, um, Quite a long time before the uh, before the Korean War, North Korea was uh, predominantly Reformed Presbyterian, and a lot of the people who died in those early years were uh, were were Reformed Presbyterian. Uh, the Presbyterian Church remains the largest denomination in South Korea. That's all because of missionaries, the work of the the early work of missionaries. Uh, when, when uh, emperor worship was, was called for, uh, it was an OPC missionary who stood on the floor of General Assembly and said, this is exactly the crossroads the early church came to when there was a pinch of incense to Caesar and we will not participate in emperor worship. And they were persecuted. And now Presbyterianism is the largest uh, denomination in Korea. According to reports in the 1930s, whole villages embraced the gospel en masse. Um, during its heyday of orthodoxy, the Presbyterian Church in the USA was a major engine of world missions, including the pioneering work of, in is, Islamic nations like Egypt. In fact, uh, to this day, Presbyterian missionaries are not only allowed but are, have been welcomed in Egypt because they're not Christian Zionists and because they built the schools, the roads, <laughs> uh, the hospitals, and so there is a, there, there is a, a great attachment uh, to, uh, to Presbyterians. Uh, think of the Dutch-American Reformed missionary, Samuel Zwemer, who was called the Apostle to Islam, whose work in the Arab countries continues to bear fruit. He himself summarized his theology of mission in these words, the, the apostle, recognize his nickname across the board. Arminians and Calvinists alike call him the apostle to Islam. He says, with God's sovereignty as our basis, God's glory as our goal, and God's will as our motive, the missionary enterprise today can face the most difficult of all missionary tasks the evangelization of the Muslim world. And he, the Lord gave him really amazing success. In fact, Presbyterians have been more involved than any other tradition in missions to the Middle East. Let me just go through very quickly. In Bahrain, the majority of Arab Christians and some Indians are members of the National Presbyterian Church. The Pioneer Mission Agency in Iran was jointly Presbyterian and Congregationalist, forming the Evangelical Church in 1855. Until recently, it was the largest Protestant church in Iran, and has a disproportionate influence, especially through a network of schools, colleges, services, and and medical schools. The Reformed Church in America pioneered missions to Iraq in 1889, joined by the Evangelical and Reformed Church and the Presbyterian Church, which became the United Mission. The oldest missionary work in Israel is sponsored by the Church of Scotland, begun in 1839. And the first mission in Kuwait and Oman were established by the Reformed Church in America in 1903. The largest Protestant membership in Syria and Lebanon is Presbyterian and Reformed. And the largest in Morocco is Reformed. So there have been a little submissions, <laughs> is my point, is sort of where I'm going here. Uh, Scottish church historian T.M. Lindsay in a meeting of the Reformed and Presbyterian Alliance in 1896 said that at least 25% of the missionaries on the field at that time were from Presbyterian and Reformed churches and he wasn't even including the Calvinistic Anglicans, Baptists, Calvinistic Methodists uh, and other and other uh, and congregationalists and other groups. One last bit of statistics. Um... Uh, a lot of the criticism uh, about Calvinism and missions has been coming from the Southern Baptist Convention because a lot of people are nervous about the growth of Calvinism in the Southern Baptist Convention. This is just going to be get out of hand and then it's going to kill missions and so uh, you know what what do uh, Calvinistic Baptists say to Uh, Arminian uh, Southern Baptists uh, to allay their fears? Well, one came from a PCA News report. No cause for worry. According to the official website, the Southern Baptist Convention sponsors about 5,000 home missionaries and more than 5,000 foreign missionaries. For a denomination of 16 million, that comes to approximately... 0.000625 missionaries per capita. By contrast, the 310,000-member Presbyterian Church in America, which believes the Bible teaches election, has about 600 foreign missionaries. That's 0.001935 foreign missionaries per capita commissioned and supported by the PCA. Although the PCA also has many home-based missionaries, those statistics were not readily available. Thus, the PCA supports three times more foreign missionaries per capita than Southern Baptist supports foreign and domestic missionaries combined. Similarly, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, greatly disproportionate missionaries to its, to its membership uh, and, and influence, especially in Africa, Eritrea, uh, and Ethiopia and other places, just really r- remarkable story. The whole o- o- OPC was founded as a missionary movement because J. Gresham Machen took a stand against the uh, uh, the, the uh, rise of, of universalism on the on the mission field and in, in with the missions professors at at uh, Princeton and Union. And he founded the Independent Board of Presbyterian Miss- Missions and was excommunicated, defrocked for doing that. Um, yet, and I'll cl- close on this one, there are still 1.3 billion people on earth who have never heard the name of Jesus for the first time. 1.3 billion people. What we need today is a, is a uh, uh, to, to return not just to these missionary stories, but to the great truths that inspired them, that motivated them for a new wave of... Modern missions. Um, in answer to this question, has Calvinism been death to missions? I think that we can safely reply, no. It has been the engine, actually, of uh, the greatest modern missionary movements that we have uh, that we have seen come down the pike. This is not to wave a flag and say, "Hoorah for our side." This is uh, this is to answer. <laughs> The objection that uh, Calvinism or Reformed theology leads to a lack of interest in missions. Now, any church can lose its interest in getting the gospel out. Any church can become obsessed with getting the gospel right, not for the purpose of getting it out, but just for getting it right and take pride in being correct without having a a zeal heart for sharing that faith with others. And there are plenty of Reformed and Presbyterian churches that do that. We have to always be, be on guard against uh, a kind of doctrinalism that, that, that is an excuse for uh, a, 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 a you know, correct mind without an inflamed heart. And what we see here in the examples that I've decided cited is people in the past whose heart has been inflamed by the wonderful truths of the doctrines of grace, not just their minds being filled by these doctrines. Any questions or comments? Um, you mentioned that the Jesuits and the that They were very, very violent. And, uh, how they, they were God's Marines, yeah. Um, <laughs> that, I see the not that the Marines are violent. I just want to be <laughs> clear. But it was—it was. They thought of it as war. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Do you think that the, the way that they carry out the, the mandate of, of Rome—that you see, Islam today is very violent. Do you think it was a response to that? That um,
2: um, I don't know the age of Muhammad did, did that. No. Version? Well, no. Actu- actually. Um, there uh yeah there are different there are different interpretations of the history obviously but uh there are periods several periods in which islam was more peaceful than christianity and uh more tolerant and then there were periods when christianity was more tolerant than islam the problem with both is they were they were christendom and islam were so completely uh, had so completely identified Christ with a culture with a civilization that they were both unable to think of their religion as a religion it was a culture it was a political geopolitical civilization and that a lot of the a lot of the violence that islam that that characterizes a lot of what we know about islam today unfortunately it learned from the christians in the era of constantine and beyond uh, Pope Urban, in I think it was 1290, uh, no, 1390, the, one of the, in, in announcing one of the Crusades, came out on his balcony with all the, the French and Spanish killing each other. It said, uh, "If you want blood, bathe in the blood of the infidels." I declare a new Crusade to the Holy Land. And so that that term infidels actually comes from a whole history of Christians calling Muslims infidels. Um, you read, you know, you read some of that stuff, and you think, "Ooh, wow, that sounds kind of like what Bin Laden, how <laughs> Bin Laden talks about us." And it was how popes were talking about, uh, uh, about Islam. Danger, that's the danger whenever Christianity becomes tethered to a culture. Ooh, dangerous, dangerous. Then you get the king of Sweden with, with uh, Sole Deo Gloria. uh, Emblazoned into his cannons. (laughs) Sola gratia, sola fide. You know the banners. It's like a like a a Ligonier conference only with cannons, actual cannons with with you know people uh, on the receiving end.
1: Stuff. So, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.